You may be seated. Thank you, brothers, very much. Thank you, Joshua, for your prayer. Thank you, Colin, for Psalm 91. Do you appreciate that, sister? I don't forget. I forget many things, but I won't forget that one. Jonathan, Psalm 91 is one of your psalms, whether you like it or not. For those of you that were members of the church back then, and Jonathan was T-boned out on a great mission of mercy and charity, and we thought that uh, we would lose Jonathan that day, the Lord had already prepared his mother in advance with Psalm 91. And so that prepared me in advance that that Sunday we went through Psalm 91. Excellent job. Thank you. It's a great psalm. Thank you for reminding us it's conditional. The world... Worldly Christians sometimes will pull verses out of that psalm thinking that they're theirs. <laughs> no, that is a conditional psalm. But what wonderful promises are there? And uh, thinking of coronavirus as a uh, pestilence, it's just perfect timing. Um, I hope that we're fearless in our faith of an almighty father. That's my three F's for the last week. Fearless in our faith of an almighty father about such things. It is ravaging another nation right now, and it's barely touched American. It could touch American. It could touch me. I hope I won't change my words at all. And I hope I'll believe exactly what Colin said to you. I get, to, I get there sooner than you do. I get an advanced placement. And, and we, let's, let's have a godly attitude toward these things. Anyway, oh, thank you very much, brothers. Thank you. Thank you. Let's open the Word of God to Isaiah 43. Isaiah 43. I appreciate a good brother this morning trying to encourage me, telling me that a single verse of this chapter could take my entire sermon, which makes 28 verses difficult, but let's move through them because the Lord has set our pace at a chapter a sermon and if you want more you can go look at an outline you can go back and read it you can go let Scorby read it to you over and over mm -hmm. and delight in the wonderful words that we have here Psalm I mean Isaiah 43 Isaiah chapter 43 God comforted his people in Babylon that he would save them though they deserve that captivity that's a one sentence summary of these 28 verses this is part of the comfort section of Isaiah that began in chapter 40, and now we're at the fourth chapter of comfort. We've already had chapters 40, 41, and 42. To comfort is to strengthen morally or spiritually, to encourage, to hearten, so forth. As I've explained, Isaiah 40 had glorious views of God's sovereign power, but it also gave us details of John the Baptist and the Lord Jesus Christ. Comfort ye, comfort ye my people, about John the Baptist and Jesus, and then... Lots of wonderful details of his sovereign power over our lives. Isaiah 41 was God mocking idolatrous nations by calling them to a debate. Remember how it was set up? He was calling them to a debate, and let's find out who the real God is here. And that was about the rise of Cyrus in chapter 41, the man from the east. And then last Sunday in chapter 42, we had glorious news of Messiah and his gospel for Gentiles in nine verses and then utter desolation for the Jews, as we had read about their utter total desolation 
in chapter 6 as well. And the Romans destroying them and ending them as a nation. And we becoming His church and holy nation. Yes, we believe in replacement theology that God has made Jews and Gentiles a replacement for His Old Testament Jewish church. I could say more in the way of introduction. It just gets us in trouble later. So let's just go to the first lesson. The first lesson is the first two verses. When you look in your preparatory email and you see the simple outline for the chapter, there's a lot of value in the simple outline for the chapter in that it will help you break the 28 verses down into pieces and see the progression of the lessons for the chapter. It's, it's very helpful. It's very helpful to me. And until I have that, I am totally unsettled on any individual verse until I see those, that simple outline of the progression of the context in the chapter. I'm just sharing that with you. The, the amount of time spent to guarantee to my conscience the simple outline is about equal to the explanation of every clause and phrase in the verses. Because I have to know that, or I don't know where it's headed. And in Isaiah, it can be, it can, it can be about Assyria, it can be about Babylon, it can be about the Romans, it can be about Sennacherib, it can be about Cyrus, it, it can be all over the place. And so once you find that, and I'm just sharing that with you, I hope that it's helpful to you when I send it out on Saturday afternoons or evenings. Isaiah 43, the first lesson, is in the first two verses, God promised to save His chosen nation. Verse 1, But now thus saith the Lord that created thee, O Jacob, and he that formed thee, O Israel, fear not, for I have redeemed thee, I have called thee by thy name, thou art mine. When thou passest through the waters, I will be with thee. And through the rivers, they shall not overflow thee. When thou walkest through the fire, thou shalt not be burned. Neither shall the flame kindle upon thee. Amen and amen. But now, but now is helpful getting this chapter and this verse started. It says, but now. That's because chapter 42 ended up with the Romans destroying the Jews and them being utterly, totally blinded perpetually. But now the prophet Isaiah is jumping back and realizing that they were going to go into captivity in Babylon, and so he's going to deal with Babylon again. He's dealt with Babylon in chapters 13 and 14, chapter 21. We've been there. We know that Babylon's coming. And so he was telling the people, and so though that's going to happen to a future generation, you are a present generation, or there's a closer generation that's going to have a, a situation in Babylon, and I want to deal with that for a chapter. It's the way Isaiah is written. And I love it just the way it is, just the way the Lord gave it to us. Let me say something to you right here quickly before it slips my mind. I have called thee by thy name. Why doesn't this verse and the many other verses where God addresses his nation, his church, why doesn't he call them Abraham? Abraham was the friend of God. Why doesn't he call him Isaac? 
Why doesn't he call him Joseph? Why does he pick on this one person? It's only one person. He's got two names. Jacob and Israel. You say, well, because he had the 12 sons that made the 12 tribes. Is there a better explanation? What does his name mean? A prince with God and has prevailed. A prince with God and has prevailed. And so the emphasis is on Jacob and Israel when the Lord addresses his nation by a personal name representing them like it does here in verse 1 of Isaiah 43. I hope that you're not disturbed by the fact that chapter 42 ended with the Romans and ended with perpetual blindness on the Jews and then it jumps in chapter 43 back to Babylon from Rome. It's been doing that every chapter and that should not alarm you and it should be a lesson for the future. I'm going to be very careful and look at the context to see what it's dealing with. And we looked at the context very carefully last Lord's Day for chapter 42. And in chapter 43, you know, we can just look ahead and see rather easily in verse 14 that it's an issue with Babylon. So that, that helps us. The Lord gives us enough guidance to know where the prophet is headed in these chapter divisions. And I've said this before, uh, the chapter divisions we do not believe are inspired. But we believe that the chapter divisions are providentially given to us as a help. I prefer Isaiah with 66 chapter divisions instead of a 1,291 verse run on. I would get lost in 1,291 verses if the Lord didn't give me his simple outline. His, his simple outline is 66 chapters. Then that helps me with my little simple outline within his chapters. Do you understand? We don't believe it's inspired because it wasn't part of the original work, but God has providentially preserved them now for several hundred years, and they're useful. So we thank him for them. But now thus saith the Lord that created thee, O Jacob. Now, this is more than just creation of mankind. This is, just, this is more than creation of the world and its trees and its bugs and its birds and the sun and the moon. This is, I've created you for a special purpose as my church. I've made you. Notice how it's going to end. Thou art mine. I have called thee by thy name. I have redeemed thee. I have formed thee. All the, in this first verse makes it far more personal than just creation is applying to all men. This is applying to his church with special thoughts of, I've created you for myself. You're mine. I've created you to redeem you. You're mine. You're my demonstration of love to the whole world, to the whole universe, to the angels, to look in awe at what I've done for you. It's more than just bare, I am your creator. I am your creator for a holy, noble, great, glorious, eternal purpose for me to shower my affection on you by showing that I can redeem you from all trouble. And you know, for us in the New Testament, it's redemption of the blood of His Son that we might be His own by predestinated adoption. It's, it's wonderful. This verse goes beyond just, I created you. It's I created you for a purpose. I created you to save you, dote on you, tenderly care for you, make you my church, 
center my worship in you, give you my scriptures, send my son through you, all of it's included. In the words, I formed you, I've redeemed you, I've called you, you're mine. When you pass through trouble, I will take care of you. I will not deal with others in the same way as we heard from Psalm 91. It's a wonderful verse, and we need to move on. So many things could be said, but now thus saith the Lord that created thee, the Lord himself is speaking, O Jacob, and he that formed thee, O Israel. Think about Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and how out of four women came those 12 tribes, and that father could wrestle with the Lord and prevail and have his name changed and be a prince with God. Wonderful. It's his church. But he, listen, we don't have... We're not called by Jacob and Israel. Do you know who we're called by? Jesus Christ, his son. Amen. It's a little bit better. Amen. Just a little bit better. We're called by Jesus, his son. I hope you appreciate the name Christian. You'll never be ashamed of the name Christian. That you'll be happy to be a Christian. A little Christ, a Christ follower, a disciple of Jesus of Nazareth. Verse 2. There's so much that could be said about redemption. I want you to think, though, with me here, because it's probably important in this chapter and a couple of the other 40s, you're going to run into the word Savior. And when you see the word Savior, don't leap to New Testament thinking, because the word Savior is limited by its context. And the word Savior sometimes is going to be saving them out of Babylon. It seemed hopeless in Babylon. Babylon was so strong, they were so weak, and yet Babylon was overthrown in a night by Cyrus the Persian. And in verse 1 we have redemption. Then we don't need to leap all the way to the cross of Calvary with the redemption because we're in Isaiah 43. And there's going to be a redemption. God redeemed Israel out of Egypt. And He used that word to describe saving them out of the house of bondage. And here He's going to save them out of the house of the Babylonians and the Chaldeans. So notice, that. please understand that. Because we don't want to spiritualize every single word, or we can't even find our way in the dark. We'll be in the dark. We'll, we'll be having spatial disorientation in the Bible if there's not something that stands up to its context and, and has the context guiding us. Because verse 2 is, is metaphorical, but it's when you get in trouble, because you're mine, because I made you, because I created you, because I formed you, and because I've called you by your name, because you're special to me, I'm not going to let bad things happen to you, is what verse 2 is there for. Right. It's metaphorical. We don't want to try to make it too, they're very literal. And there's four expressions. And I want you to notice, I want you to notice that the Presbyterians do not fear God like we fear God. Because we just had to sing a whole bunch of plural pronouns and I almost needed a bucket up here at the front. These are all singular. It's nauseating, that Trinity hymnal. It should have messed... I was messed up. I get messed up easily. I have a weak stomach. I don't. But when it comes to that, I do. Because I want these words... The words right out of the, out of the Bible. Look at how they're all singular. Now, when they're singular like this, he can be addressing the whole nation because he called the nation a single man, Jacob and Israel. However, 
when Jonathan Crosby reads it, he also wants to see that that God created him, formed him, made him, called him, will redeem him, and when he has to go through the fire, God will be there for him alone, whether he's with the rest of you or not. And you should be saying the same thing about me. Please say it about me, so that we can be fair. When thou passest through the waters, I will be with thee. Notice those two singular pronouns, thou and thee. And through the waters, they shall not overflow thee. When thou walkest through the fire, thou shalt not be burned, neither shall the flame kindle upon thee. Those are four different descriptions involving two things that we don't like. Two things that we're afraid of. That's too much water and too much fire. And that's why the Lord was so creative in the lake of fire. Now that just gets us right where it hurts to even think about the lake of fire. But here we have water, too much of it, fire, too much of it, he'll protect us. It's metaphorical expressions. Yes, we could start to rub our hands together and say, well, what about the three Hebrew men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego? They had to be thrown into a fiery furnace and they were delivered. Excellent point. This is still metaphorical. As, it, as it's describing, anytime you get in trouble with something, you can't... Fire is powerful. The water is powerful. And when there's too much of either one, they're destructive and devastating. But the Lord will protect us. And hasn't he protected you? You know, we were told that we should uh, once in a while tell the Lord that he's done something for us. He's protected me so many times. Usually the water and the fire are my own producing produ- production. The trouble that I'm in that's too much water and too much fire in my life is usually my own fault. But he still delivers me. And he says, I will not remember your sins for my own sake. Are we going to get to a verse like that in this chapter? Yes, we are. Let's remember that. And so the Lord will take care of us, no matter what kind of a situation you're in and how terrible it looks and how devastating it could be. He's able to take care of you. And thank you, Colin, for answering those that might ask, have Christians ever died from the pestilence? Of course, it's a mercy killing. It's a mercy killing. But has he ordinarily practically delivered his people? Oh, yes, it's, it's going on right now. It's going on right now. As of one week ago, the best body count is, was 25,764 in one country. Not 300 that you're being told. And, and, and enough about that. It's, I, I, I love reading about it just a little bit because to me it's just pestilence. Coronavirus is spelled P-E-S-T-I-L-E-N-C-E to me. And so whenever I see it anywhere, I just think of Bible verses that tell me, go ahead and laugh about it, Johnny. I've got you covered. And he's got us covered at different levels in different ways, and I thank God for that. One way is we don't go around eating snakes and bats. Did I say I wasn't going to say any more? Let's go to lesson number two. Lesson number two is verses three and four, and I preached this to you in May of 2019, about uh, eight or nine months ago, and I love these two verses because it describes God's love for His church, and the measure is not the price of the soul. That was last Sunday. The measure is not that I gave my son. The measure is 
I destroy other people to save you. Does that get your attention? Jacob have I loved, but Esau have I hated. And I'm referring to Malachi chapter 1, where Israel said, Where have you loved us? Jacob have I loved, and Esau have I hated. They try to rebuild, and I tear it down. There is a huge difference from the border of Israel. And we should see that border, and I just alluded to a border. Here we go, verses 3 and 4, lesson number 2. God sacrificed other nations for Israel. For I am the Lord thy God. For I am the I am that I am thy God, the Holy One of Israel, thy Savior. I don't save everyone. I save my church. I save my nation. I save my people that I formed and created and redeemed for myself because they're mine. I gave Egypt for thy ransom, Ethiopia and Seba for thee. Since thou wast precious in my sight, thou hast been honorable, and I have loved thee. Therefore will I give men for thee, and people for thy life. Amen and amen. This is not a politically correct lesson from Isaiah 43, verses 3 and 4. You just don't go around saying that God loves some people and He kills others for the advantage of those people that He loves, but that's what it says. And that's what I believe. And I thank God that He gave me an instrument panel early in my life and said, don't disregard what's outside your cockpit, disregard what's inside your cockpit, my instrument panel and my flight manual is true. Preach it, believe it, defend it, promote it, push it. Never back down with it. And I'm not going to back down from these verses. These verses are wonderful. God burned Egypt to the ground for the sake of his people. He took everything out of their bank accounts. He left their houses empty of every good thing and gave those good things to his own children. They... they they plundered that nation when they left it. By the grace of God, oh yes, I read it with a smile. Amen. I love it. When I read about the quantity of gold that was involved in building the tabernacle and know where it came from, it didn't come from slaves. It came from the Egyptians. But it was carried into Canaan by slaves. And so we have it here. You know, there was a number of times God gave Egypt for the ransom of the Jews in Israel. And he gave Ethiopia. Do you remember chapters 18 and chapters 20? When Sennacherib had come into Judea. Sennacherib. And how God had Sennacherib lift his siege of Jerusalem because he had to go deal with Terhaka of the Ethiopian-Egypt combine. They were a confederation of nations. It's there in chapters 18 and 20. And he wiped, they easily defeated them. That's why Isaiah had to go around for three years without very many clothes on. Because Egypt and Ethiopians were all going to look like captive slaves when the Lord got done with them. See, that's another time. How about the wages for Nebuchadnezzar's army because they had to besiege Tyre for so long and didn't get the good stuff because the Tyrenians, being the best sailors in the Mediterranean, had escaped the island city with all their wealth. And God felt sorry for Nebuchadnezzar. Do you remember all this? This is, this is world history, the Bible way. God felt sorry for Nebuchadnezzar. Okay, Nebuchadnezzar, you're my servant. You're my king of kings. 
You did a nasty job on Tyre, but you didn't get paid for it, so I'm going to give you Egypt. Does it say that in the Bible very specifically? This is world history the Bible way. I hope that you, every video you watch about war, every article you read about war or politics, you read this way. I do. Every one. Every battle. Every war. Every political event. I look for what did God do in this one for his people? Did he do some things this past week? Did our president have his best week? Yes, he did. Was the Lord with him? Yes. And are you looking for it all the time? Good. Good, because this right here is an axiom that we don't want to forget. I am the Lord thy God, the Holy One of Israel. I'm your God. I'm your Holy One. I'm your Savior. Do you see that? I'm not a Savior. I'm not a Holy One. I'm not the Lord God. I am the Lord thy God. Do you know how to make the Bible personal for you? How to make it personal for your family? How to make it personal for our church? This is the way it's written. The Bible isn't written to all men. The Bible's written to his churches. You go to the epistles of the New Testament, to the saints in the church at Corinth, with the bishops and deacons. Philippians 1. It's written to his people. Embrace it that way. It takes on so much more meaning. If God's love extends to everyone, it's the love of a whore. It's a meaningless, worthless love. That they've had, their God has a strange way of loving since he burns up 90% of those that he loves in the lake of fire. How's that love? Show me the love. Show me the passion that he has for those in the lake of fire. You can't be separated from the love of God according to the Bible. But they're certainly separated from the love of God unless there's something going on in hell that I can't find in the Bible. You say, why'd you get off on hell again? It scares me. Because God needs vessels of wrath and God needs vessels of mercy. And if you're sitting here today and you want to love this God and you do love this God, you're a vessel of mercy. Rejoice in it. He's never going to let anything happen to you. And you can go ahead and make the fire in verse 2 the lake of fire if you need to i don't and i don't believe that's what's intended by it but if you need to then go there because no fire is going to kindle on you because you're one of his elect verses three and four so powerful how did cyrus get paid he was he was paying out to let the jews go free and to help them build we're going to find out as we go through the rest of these 40s and 50s that he got paid with nations God gave him. Right. He took over the world. Cyrus took over the world. There was the great Babylonian Empire, but Cyrus ended up being the king of it. And it was called the Persian Empire. It wasn't called the Media Empire or the Media Persian Empire. It was called the Persian Empire. He's known as Cyrus the Persian. He's known as Cyrus the Great because God made him great. And you better get prepared to hear about Cyrus because we've got him by name in chapter 44 and we've got him by name in chapter 45. And next Lord's Day, we'll try to stick those two chapters together and we will learn again about Cyrus the Great because he was God's servant. I am the Lord thy God. I hope you see the personal nature of this from verse 1 in verse 2. Verse 3 still has the singular pronouns that God was the special God, the loving God, the caring God of His church. He was His church's Savior. 
I gave other nations for you. And Egypt was a far greater nation than was the Jews. We don't have to worry about numbers, size, growth rates of nations or churches or denominations. All we want to do is make the Most High our habitation and know His name and set our love on Him. And when we set our love on Him, it's because He has first set His love on us. Verse 4, Since thou wast precious in my sight, thou hast been honorable, and I have loved thee. Therefore will I give men for thee and people for thy life. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take Babylon down. I'm going to take Babylon down for you because you're important to me. You've been honorable. You, you were precious. Now that precious, were the Jews really precious or were they the most stiff-necked, stubborn people in the history of the world? Which one is true? Yes. From whose perspective? From the perspectives of their character, they were the most stiff-necked people in the world. From God's purpose with them, they were precious in His sight. You say, well, that's kind of comforting. Because once in a while, once in a rare while, I sin. You say to me, I sin. And how could God... Oh, this is what He does. Thou wast precious in my sight, you stiff-necked, stubborn people, and thou hast been honorable. You're, you're an honorable nation to me because I've set my honor upon you and I have loved thee. Therefore will I give men for thee and people for thy life. And I preached through that in detail in May of 2019. We need to go to the next lesson. And the next lesson is verses 5 through 7. If you want more on verses 3 and 4, and there is certainly more, then you can go reference that sermon preached uh, last year. Verses 5 through 7, God would recover them from scattering. God had scattered them, He had chastened them, but He was going to recover them, and that is in verses 5 through 7. Fear not. That was up there in verse 1. Fear not. Let's not be anxious. We had psychotherapy from Psalm 119 last Lord's Day. I give you a little bit more today. Fear not. It's a choice. Stop being afraid. What are you afraid of? God's with you. No water can hurt you of any kind or amount. No fire can hurt you of any kind or amount. Fear not. Don't be afraid. Amen. The newspaper wants you to be afraid. The internet wants you to be afraid. Everybody wants to be afraid of something. They want to find something to entertain you with fear that you want to be afraid of this and afraid of that. You know, one year it's afraid of red meat. And the next year they open out back steakhouses and there's no longer any fear of red meat. And it just goes on and on. There's fear of coffee. Then there's no fear of coffee. There's fear of fluoridated water. Then there's no fear of fluoride because they want to jam it, jam it into your toothpaste as well. And on and on it goes. Uh, everybody's afraid. Fear not. Okay. Let me t here's how I've been closing out my correspondence for a week or two. Fearless. By faith. In an almighty father. Amen. Because I have to. You should, you should be saying to yourself, I have to. I can't be afraid. I want to be fearless. No fear. You know, they mean it in a ridiculous, insane, rebellious way, but we want to mean it. God's with us. We don't need to be afraid. Fear not, for I am with thee. There's the explanation. We can close our Bibles up. We've got Isaiah 43. Fear not, for I am with thee. That's the reason why we're not afraid. God is with us. I will bring thy seed from the east, gather thee from the west. I will say to the north, give up. And to the south, keep not back. Bring my sons from far and my daughters from the ends of the earth. 
even every one that is called by my name, for I have created him. Now we know about this creation. I have created him for my glory. I have formed him. Yea, I have made him. He's mine. He's my special nation. I picked this group of people that were the smallest number of people on earth, and I made them my church. Can you get excited about these verses? Amen. He's made you. He's created you for His glory. Let's give Him His glory. When you read about politics, you have to, I have to bring up politics. When we're in Isaiah, I have to bring up politics a little bit. When you read about politics, just remember verse 6. I will say the north. What does he mean by north? Is he talking to the compass? Is he talking to the north pole? Or is he talking to mighty nations in the north that held his people captive? Right. Yes. C is the correct answer. I will say the north, give up. Yeah. I love those words. Yeah. Give up. Yeah. Give my people back to me. Give up. And then to the south, keep not back. Don't you hold a single one that I want back in Jerusalem. Keep not back. Bring my sons from far and my daughters from the ends of the earth. And God did that. He brought back his select good figs from all over the place, put them back in Jerusalem. They built him a second temple. And that second temple was always looking forward to the one that would grace it with his presence. And that's the Lord Jesus Christ, the son of Jehovah. And rejoice in that. Whenever you read the news, there's a God in heaven saying, give up, keep not back. He's in charge of the nations. Right. Is it okay to call him the king of nations, as the Bible does? Mm -hmm. Is he king of kings and lord of lords? Mm -hmm. Yes. And so he did that for the Jews. Next lesson is at verse 8 through verse 13. So I read six verses to you. Israel was witness that their God, Jehovah, was far superior to the idols of the nations. Six verses, 8 through 13. Israel was a witness, and we want to be God's witness. Can our church, can your family, can I, be the most dedicated witnesses to the existence of the only living and true God named Jehovah and His Son, Jesus Christ, who was the fullness of the Godhead in a body. Will we be witnesses of the Most High and His Son? Wherever we go, that doesn't mean we are, we're stupid out in public, but it means whenever we have an opportunity, we're willing to talk about the Great One that is our God and His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Okay, that's the lesson. Verses 8 through 13. Bring forth the blind people that have eyes. This, oh, I just love this kind of language. Do you all love this kind of language with me? Amen. Or am I, am I an oddball even in my own church? No. By my, the Lord's church, you know what I meant. I love these kind of words. This is God through the prophet Isaiah. This is real preaching. Bring me the deaf, dumb, and blind, you people that are parts of other denominations, other religions, other cults. Bring forth the blind people that have eyes and the deaf that have ears. Let all the nations be gathered together and let the people be assembled. Who among them can declare this 
and show us former things. Let them bring forth their witnesses, that they may be justified. Or let them hear and say, It is truth. Ye are my witnesses, saith the Lord, and my servant whom I have chosen, that ye may know and believe me, and understand that I am he. Before me there was no God formed, neither shall there be after me. I, even I, am the Lord, and beside me there is no Savior. I have declared, and have saved, and I have showed, when there was no strange God among you. Therefore ye are my witnesses, saith the Lord, that I am God. Yea, before the day was, I am he. And there is none that can deliver out of my hand. I will work, and who shall let it? Amen. Is there not a cause to be a witness of this God and his works and his prophecies, his fulfilled prophecies? The summary of the lesson is, hey, all you nations that think you have gods, come and let's have a meeting again. Let's have another assembly and another debate. Can you tell me something from former things and how it progressed and a prophecy was fulfilled? Or do you want to listen to mine? If you can do it, you can justify your religion as being true. If you can't do it, then you need to say something about my religion. It is truth. Because I did this when there was no strange God among the Israelites. Because when he took them to Babylon, he changed their hearts. Did you read about the figs last night? I needed you to read about the figs last night. He changed them. So they, they weren't idolaters in Babylon. Since you had no strange God with you, there was only one God, and I was the one, and I was showing and declaring these things in advance, and I brought them to pass. There's none like me. There's never been a God formed after me or before me. I've never seen one. I can't find one. I am He. That's, that's my God. That's my God. Where's, where's Shadrach, Meshach when I need him? That's my king. Shadrach, Meshach, Lockridge. That's who I'm referring to. You know what I'm referring to when I say that. For those of you in audio land or video land or whatever land you're in, it's on our website entitled, That's My King. Verse 8, bring forth the blind people that have eyes and the deaf that have ears. Get those Gentiles out here with all their idolatrous religions worshiping the works of men's hands. Get them out here. Verse 9, let all the nations be gathered together. Get the Gentiles together. Let the people be assembled. I want an assembly. I want an assembly of the earth to come together so that we can talk about who's got the true religion and who worships a real God. Pull them together. Verse 8 is worded the way it is, because if you worship an idol, you're so blind, you have eyes but you can't see, you have ears but you can't hear, just like your statutes. Your statues. Like it's taught in Psalm 115, and Psalm 135 says that, they that worship them are like unto them. And so that's why we have verse 8. Verse 9 is, call everyone together, and let's have another contest. The test is the same thing. Cyrus. Who could declare the former things of the rise of Babylon and the weakness of Persia and the weakness of Media and show the development that the two of them would come together, two of them would come together and become a mighty foe and overthrow Babylon? That's why it says former things. Former things isn't a proof of anything by itself. You've got to understand those words. Former things is history. Anyone can declare history. But how can you take something that was in the past? You've got to start with a starting point. 
You just can't say something so vague as, life will get better for you, as the fortune cookie says, as you peel into that piece of cardboard and even think about eating it. As you peel into that piece of cardboard and pull out that little piece of paper, life is going to get better for you. From where? From what? To what? To where? To when? What in the world does that mean? That isn't a prophecy. Listen, I could get, I could get better. My life would get better just by putting that thing back in its wrapper. <laughs> that, that's, you say, why are you, going, why are you like that right now? Because of the former things? Right. Do you know how to explain the former things? Former things are past things. We've already been over this in chapter 41 because we had the same expression in chapter 41. You've got to pick a starting point. Pick a starting point. Mighty Babylon overthrew the Assyrian Empire. Babylon and Nebuchadnezzar took Nineveh, a monster city, on the Tigris. Babylon's on the Euphrates, on the Tigris, north of Babylon, and destroyed it. And there's books in the Bible about the tremendous event of the Babylonians destroying the Ninevites. Jonah had gone to them 160 years before their ruin, and they had repented, and God had spared them. But he didn't spare them from Nebuchadnezzar. And so you start with Babylon is great and mighty, and Persia's weak, and Media's weak, and they're not very much, and Babylon's ruling the world. And how does this Cyrus come into being? And how does he get Media to join with him? The relationship with his uncle. And how does, that's all next Sunday, because it's not all specified here. How does he pull that force together and take Babylon in one night? Don't have to besiege them for years. Take them in a night. That's verse 9. Get your priests here, just like chapter 41. Get your priests here and see if you can explain who among them, who among all the religions of the world can declare this and show us former things and how they developed into the overthrow of Babylon, which is in verse 14. Let them bring forth their witnesses, that they may be justified, or let them hear and say it is truth. Either let them show us that they have the true God with them, who was able to foretell this event and justify their religion as being true, or if they can't do that, they should hear us and what we say, and their their response should be, it is truth. That's the true religion. And so that's what the Lord is saying in verse 9. Verse 10, Israel, ye are my witnesses. Notice, he calls for them to bring forth their witnesses in verse 9 from these Gentile idolatrous nations. Let them bring forth their witnesses. What witnesses do their gods have? What evidence is there of the existence and the power and the prescience, the ability to forecast of these Gentile idols? Where are their witnesses? Israel, you're my witnesses. Ye are my witnesses, saith the Lord, and my servant whom I have chosen, that ye may know and believe me and understand that I am he. Before me there was no God formed, neither shall there be after me. Because in verse 12, I have declared and have saved and I have showed when there was no strange God among you. Therefore, ye are my witnesses, saith the Lord, that I am God. There's only one God in the world and ye are my witnesses, Israel. You're my chosen people. I picked you, formed you, created you, redeemed you. You're mine. And I get to show you all this good stuff, big stuff, great stuff, by forecasting the overthrow of empires 
and the raising up of a new empire that the first matter of business was to tell the Jews they may go back to Jerusalem and rebuild the city and rebuild the temple. I showed you, and when I showed you, and when I told you, and when I let the details out, you were not worshiping an idol, so there's only one God in play here, me. I am he, and I alone am he. There's no one like me. Ye are my witnesses. I want to be his witness. I've wanted to be his witness since my late teen years. I love this God. And you know where anyone can go that doesn't love this God. You say, that's strong language. How about 1 Corinthians 16? If any man love not the Lord Jesus Christ, let him be anathema maranatha. That's one of my marching orders. I believe that verse. I love this God, and I hate every competitor, and I hate every idiot that wants to ever say anything against this God that would come into Isaiah 43 and would question some of the terminology and some of the severity that is described here, like in verses 3 and 4, that he will sacrifice other people for his people. I love this God. And with David, the sweet psalmist of Israel, and I hope I'm as sweet as David was, O Lord, do not I hate them with perfect hatred that hate Thee. I want you to love these kind of verses and this terminology and these words as we have to rush through these chapters. I want you to look at verse 10 and I want you to say to yourself, I want to be His witness. I want to be His witness. Every family in here should want to be His witness. The families in this church have a captain. You're going to learn in the second service the difference between a pilot and a captain. A pilot ain't much. A captain's the pilot in charge of the flight. And you fathers and husbands are the captains. You're the captains. At best, your wife is a co-pilot. She gets you coffee when you need it. You need to be a captain. And your families should be these witnesses. And let's all, you know what you children are? Your attendants. It's coming. Get ready for it. You can start disliking me already. Your flight attendants poor things but you know what you're getting you're getting some wonderful stuff ahead of time so that when you're captains and co-pilots you can have great families because that's the goal ye are my witnesses you're my servant I wanted you to know and believe me and understand that I am he there's no God like me there's never been one formed after me before me this is verse 10 you Israelites I want you to know how great I am I even I am the Lord, and beside me there is no Savior. I'm going to get you out of Babylon. I'm going to get you out of there so easily. I'm going to get you out of there with Cyrus the Persian, the man from the east from chapter 41. I'm going to name him in the next chapter. I'm going to name him in the chapter following that. I'm going to do these things for you. I've declared it, verse 12. I've saved you. You say, but that's in the perfect tense. I have saved. Please don't argue on verb tenses in the book of Isaiah. He's got verb tenses that run all over. I've declared, I've saved, I've showed when there was no strange God among you. Therefore ye are my witnesses, saith the Lord, that I am God. And and I want you to be able to connect 10 and 12 to understand that you're my witnesses because I told you all this stuff in advance that these other people, other nations, other religions cannot do. They can't do it. They can't justify themselves. The only thing they can do is say about our religion, it is truth. And let's believe that. It is truth. What we believe, what we teach, what we hold to in this church, it is truth. 
We don't have to apologize for that. We should never apologize for that. We ran into that in Psalm 91. We run into it throughout the whole Bible. If God said it, that settles it. That's the truth. It is truth. Let God be true, but every man a liar. That is the attitude we should have. That's the perspective on the world. That's our worldview. If God said it, that settles it. It is truth. And he does certain things for us to know that it's truth. And he loves fulfilled prophecy because no God can do that. And it takes a supernatural being to be able to forecast the future and to bring it to pass. And he did that repeatedly. And he, that is the emphasis of these chapters in the 40s in the book of Isaiah. And there was no strange God among you. I did it because I was your God. Therefore, ye are my witnesses, in verse 12 as it ends, that I am God. Yea, before the day was, I am he. Before there was a day and a night. Before Genesis 1-1. Before Genesis 1-3, I was God. I'm the eternal, self-existent, independent, everlasting God. From everlasting to everlasting, I am God. Yea, before the day was, I am he. And there is none that can deliver out of my hand, including Belshazzar. I will work, and who shall let it? And that word let there is hinder or restrain, as it is used in the Old English, as we have it also in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 and other places. When I work, who's going to hinder me? Who's going to slow me down? There is none that can, that can say, even question me. What doest thou? Or restrain my arm. And so we get to the next lesson. That's a wonderful lesson. Israel was witnesses, and we want to be witnesses that our God is the true God and His religion is the truth. It is truth. Verses 14 through 17, God would overthrow Babylon for them. Verse 14, thus saith the Lord, your Redeemer. Notice why redeem is put here again like it was in verse 1. And that's why I mentioned to you, when you see words that we apply in the New Testament to salvation, don't jump too fast. Remember the context here. There was another redemption. And it was called redemption of Egypt, and it's redemption of Babylon. To redeem someone is to buy them back from the claims of another. And the Babylonians had rightly beaten the nation of the Jews and taken some captives. They had a right to it from that standpoint. But God redeemed them out by another nation beating the Babylonians and delivering the Jews. Thus saith the Lord your Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel, for your sake... I have sent to Babylon and have brought down all their nobles and the Chaldeans whose cry is in the ships. I am the Lord, your Holy One, the Creator of Israel, your King. What wonderful personal words. Do you want those words said about you, about our church, about your family? I am the Lord, your Holy One, the Creator of Israel, your King. Verse 16, Thus saith the Lord, which maketh a way in the sea and a path in the mighty waters, which bringeth forth the chariot and horse, the army and the power. They shall lie down together, they shall not rise, they are extinct, they are quenched as tow. Now those verb tenses will give you a real workout. If you want to go to verses 16 and 17 and look at that variety of verb tenses about the same event. But let's get back to 14 and 15. I have sent to Babylon... I have sent Cyrus to Babylon. He's going to take the city with Darius the Mede and have brought down all their nobles, all their princes, all their rulers. That thousand princes that gathered with Belshazzar the last night of his life and they toasted the gods of the Babylonians 
with the vessels taken out of the temple in Jerusalem. You don't do that to our God. You don't say even God couldn't sink the Titanic. God can sink anything anywhere. He didn't save that, that boat from the waters, did he? But he's given us a lesson for the last 107 years or so since that happened. Thus saith the Lord, your Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel, for your sake, I'm going to get you out of that city. I'm going to take down Babylon. I've brought down their nobles. I've brought down the Chaldeans, whose cry is in the ships. Present tense, cry in the ships. Is this an expression that Babylon was so rich that they had ships coming from the Persian Gulf up the Euphrates for commerce purposes, and these are cries of celebration? Well, they weren't celebrating... They weren't celebrating in verse 14. Or are these cries in the ships as the Chaldeans tried to flee the city of Babylon and there wasn't any water to float a ship? What was the case? Do you know what happened to the ships that were docked on the Euphrates in Babylon when Cyrus and Darius diverted the water so that the army could march through? You need... A, shift, a ship has a draft, meaning the, de the depth that it needs to pass over ground. And if you can march an army in on the, on the riverbed, you're not going to float a ship out to the Persian Gulf. Right. Sorry, we got to move on. But when you read, slow, slow down when you read. There's neat stuff in the Bible. Yes. Whose cry is in the ships, not was in the ships, is in the ships. Because it's the way that Babylon was overthrown. They dried up the river. It's gonna, we're going to be told that in 44 and 45. They dried up the river. Can you imagine? You hear the news that the Persians and Medes are at both gates. And so you rush to the dock to get in your ship to get out of town. Get out of Dodge. And there's no getting out. There's armies at each end. And there's not much in the riverbed. Oh, I just... I am the Lord. Yes, we give you... Oh, yes, Lord. We give you honor and we give you glory. You are the Lord. You're the Holy One, the Creator of Israel, your King. Verses 16 and 17 are a reference to the deliverance out of Egypt. Thus saith the Lord, which maketh a way in the sea. That's the Red Sea. There wasn't a way made in the sea in order for Cyrus to take down Babylon. This is referring to a past event. You say, how do you know that it's referring to a past event? Because of verse 18, remember ye not the former things. That's why I cheat and read ahead. And, and I'm sorry, honestly, it tells us in verse 18 that 16 and 17 are some past event. And if you focus on the verb tenses, you're going to get messed up. I just want to tell you that ahead of time. But let's just read these two verses about Egypt. Thus saith the Lord, which maketh a way in the sea. Yes, he did. He divided the Red Sea, and his people went through the mighty waters on dry ground, which bringeth forth the chariot and horse. What chased Israel out of town? Pharaoh and his chariots. The army and the power, the authority and reigning power of Egypt was brought out into the Red Sea. So the vehicle of deliverance, a path through the Red Sea, became the tool of destruction. It's fearless by faith in an almighty Father. This is what he can do. 
which bringeth forth the chariot and horse, the army and the power. They shall lie down together. They shall not rise because he brought them out. This is what would happen to them. They are extinct. Notice, perfect tense of a completed action in the past. They are extinct. They are quenched as tow. They've been burned up like a wick. Like flax. That was, that was the lesson of verses 14 through 17. I am going to save you from Babylon. It's going to be a salvation in some ways, like your salvation from Egypt, but forget Egypt. Because I, I really want to do something new for you. And so we get to the next lesson, which is verse 18. This new salvation would exceed the former salvations. Verse 18 through 21. Remember ye not the former things, neither consider the things of old. Forget that old stuff of deliverance out of Egypt that the Jews remembered and they should have, and we do, because it was indeed a great event. But the Lord is saying, I've got something new for you. That's not all that, I, that's not all that I'm willing to do for your nation. That was a long time ago. That's a former thing. I got something for you now. Behold, I will do a new thing. Now it shall spring forth. Shall ye not know it? I've told you about it. I will even make a way in the wilderness and rivers in the desert. Because see, this wasn't through the Red Sea. This was through, this was through Arabia Deserta, which is that ugly piece of ground between Babylon and Jerusalem. You know, you, want, you had to go up and go around it to a certain degree, but you wanted to cut through it to save yourself a great deal of distance. It was terrible. But the Lord is going to take care of them through that terrible trip. 900 miles. The beasts of the field shall honor me, the dragons and the owls, because I give waters in the wilderness and rivers in the desert to give drink to my people, my chosen. This people have I formed for myself. They shall show forth my praise. Let's show forth his praise. He's done greater things for us than he ever did for Israel. He saved us out of the hand and power of the devil and the condemnation of the law of God, out of the lake of fire and into heaven itself. Our names are in the Lamb's book of life. Before the foundation of the world. Don't remember the old things like the deliverance from Egypt, verse 18. Verse 19, I want to do something new. I've told you about it. It's going to spring forth now. Shall ye not know it? I told you in 41. I told you in 43. I'm going to give you the details in 44 and 45 so that you can know in advance of what's going to happen. And I am going to take care of you all the way back home. I'm going to provide water where you need it. Metaphorical expressions. Uh, the beast of the field is going to be your friend. They're going to honor me. They're not going to eat up all your children on the way back home over 900 miles. Were the lions in the area capable of eating up their children? Oh, yeah. Remember when those that had been immigrated into the area had to send and ask for some priest? to come and tell us a little bit about the God of this area because we're getting eaten by lions. And when you get over to 2 Corinthians chapter 11, is it any better? Did Paul, what did Paul say he, perils of, uh, oh, perils of wild beasts. The Apostle Paul. You know, between now and, between you and getting home, even if you drive as far as Hendersonville, you're probably not going to run into a lion. Now they got some wolves up there and bear. The beast of the field's going to honor me. I'm gonna, they're going to do what I tell them to do. The doleful creatures that live in the wilderness and desert, they're going to take care of you. I'm going to give waters. I'm going to give rivers. I'm going to give you drink. 
These are metaphorical expressions of a deliverance out of Babylon and bringing them all the way back to Jerusalem, safe and sound. This people have I formed for myself. They shall show forth my praise. And when they got back, when they got back, Ezra chapter 3 describes the laying of the foundation of the house of the Lord and a shout went up to heaven. Right. A shout went up to heaven. They shall praise me because of the deliverance out of Babylon. We want a church of shouting praise. Amen. He's delivered us from greater things, as, as I said. That's the sixth lesson. Lesson number seven is the last seven verses. Israel's sins deserved captivity in Babylon. This is useful for us to keep us humble. When God delivers us, that means we were in trouble. When we were in trouble, were we in trouble because God's mean? Were we in trouble because we didn't deserve it? Or were we in trouble because we deserved it? And so these seven verses are to say, for the Lord just to remind them, in Babylon, you know, you were there for a reason. And it was your fault, not my fault. It was your fault, but I'm going to forgive your sins anyway for my own sake so that I can do something big and get you back into Jerusalem and you can praise me. Are you willing to follow that? That sounds pretty merciful to me. That sounds pretty generous that he will forgive my transgressions. I got myself in trouble, yet he bails me out, though it was my fault. And he'll forget those and not remember my transgressions. Isn't that wonderful, brother? I know. You're sinner number two in this church because I'm number one. We'll argue about it later this week. I know I'll I'll have to do something because you won't let me get off that easy. And number three sitting right here in front of me. Isn't it wonderful? He wants us to praise him. We got ourselves in trouble. But he delivered us out of trouble that we got ourselves into. That's the lesson. I'm just paraphrasing it for you as we read through it. Here we go. Verse 22. But thou hast not called upon me, O Jacob, after all I've done for you and the way I've thought towards you in verses 1 through 21. But, look at that inspired disjunctive, but... Thou hast not called upon me, O Jacob, but thou hast been weary of me, O Israel. Thou hast not brought me the small cattle of thy burnt offerings, neither hast thou honored me with thy sacrifices. I have not caused thee to serve with an offering, nor wearied thee with incense. Thou hast brought me no sweet cane with money, bought me no sweet cane with money, neither hast thou filled me with the fat of thy sacrifices, but thou hast made me to serve with thy sins. Thou hast wearied me with thine iniquities. That's the situation of Israel's character. Israel's character was neglecting God's religion. I would like you to notice a play on the word weary. But are you ever tired of going to church? Tired of staying awake? You have a spiritual problem. You should be hoping with all your might you're even saved. How in the world can we weary God and His worship? We hardly do it at all. There's 168 hours in a week. We're only together for a a very few of them. It's nothing. This weariness, this snuffing at God's religion is in Malachi chapter 1, which I've taken you to many times before. Try it on your governor, Malachi said. Why don't you wander into his office, begrudging the fact that you're there, and bring him some second-rate gift and see what happens to you. Remember from Malachi? Here we have it again. You're wearied with my worship. 
It's verse 22. Thou hast been weary of me, O Israel. Let's never let that happen. Don't let it happen with your children. We all have flesh, but we can't do that. We can't be wearied of worshiping God the little tiny bit that we worship Him. I don't make you stand from morning until midday like they did in Nehemiah 8. We don't get together every day of the week like they did at the Church of Jerusalem in Acts chapter 2. We hardly give them anything. So we shouldn't be weary about it. I want you to notice the play on words. And you know what? This play on words disappears if you get other Bible translations that don't stick to the words God gave. We have the word weary in three successive verses. It's, it's beautiful. Verse 23, I have not, at the end, the second sentence in verse 23, I have not caused thee to serve with an offering, nor wearied thee with incense. I have not made my religious onerous and painful for you to worship me. I do not press sacrifices on you all the time. I have not worried you. The commandments of God are not grievous. And that's what that verse means. I want you to watch his use of the word weary. If you, if you highlight in your Bible, oh, please get the three W words. Because then verse 24, at the end, thou hast wearied me with thine iniquities. Do you see the play on weary? You guys are worried of worshiping me. I didn't make my religion wearisome. I'm the one that's wearied by having to put up with you sinners. I love it. That puts us in our place. Lord, is his religion easy? My yoke is easy. My burden is light. Come unto me, all you that labor and are heavy laden, I'll give you rest. It's easy. Why, why do we get wearied of it? Because we're wicked. We're selfish. We're babies. We're carnal. We're belly worshipers. Thank you. We're belly worshipers. Thank you. I didn't make my religion hard. It's easy. Why can't you come and worship me? Look at, look at how I look at you. Why can't you look at me in a little better way than you do? Your prayer. It's plain, isn't it? Verse 25, I, even I, am he that blotteth out thy transgressions for mine own sake, and will not remember thy sins. I'm gonna, listen, I'm bringing you back from Babylon. I'm going to put you back in Jerusalem. Even though you treated me like this, I'm going to do it for my own sake. Because I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get myself a name by taking down Babylon the night that they wanted to toast their gods with my vessels. I'm going to take them down to get myself a name. I'm going to do it for my... I don't care if he does it for his own sake. Everything the Lord does toward me, I want him to do it for his sake. Do you know why? Because it gives him all the glory, and I know it's going to be done first class. And those are not appropriate words. I don't know appropriate words. Because it's an unspeakable gift of what he's done for me and for you. Verse 26 Put me in remembrance. Would you, would you Israelites, remind me? Would you remind me of what good you've done that deserves me rescuing you out of Babylon? Put me in remembrance. Notice, in verse 25, I won't remember your sins. In verse 26, why don't you tell me some good things that I can remember? Put me in remembrance. Let us plead together. Declare thou that thou mayest be justified. Justify yourself with some good stuff you've done for me. Can, can we just tell the Lord, I'm the chief of sinners. I'm not a, 
of the chief of sinners. You know, there's a time to pray like Hezekiah, remember me for good when he's on his deathbed, but there's also a time to tell the Lord, I've never done anything worthy of your blessing and favor, but thank you for doing it for your sake. Thy first father hath sinned, and thy teachers have transgressed against me. There's a collective noun for the fathers of singular, fathers, constantly referred to in the Bible. Much more can be said in this verse, and I don't want to get distracted with it right now. You can ask me anything you want to about verse 27. It is the trickiest verse in chapter 43, because I want the lesson. Thy first father hath sinned. You've been sinners from the beginning. You've been sinners in rank, first in rank, first in time. And thy teachers have transgressed against me. Your rulers, your kings, whether it is Saul, the first king, Manasseh, the king of rank, that caused them to go into Babylon, you've sinned against me. Therefore, I have profaned the princes of the sanctuary and have given Jacob to the curse and Israel to reproaches. The reason you're in Babylon is because of the way you've treated me from the top down, from the beginning forward, you've been wicked and sinned against me and your teachers and your rulers. Therefore, I had the right, the reason, the righteousness to send you to Babylon, but I'm going to pull you out of it now. I'm going to forgive your sins and you're going to praise me. Let's make sure we praise him. And let's make sure we're never wearied with the worship of God. Right. How could we get wearied with something so good for someone so good toward us? Amen and amen.